I'm Corey Astle. And I'm Kyle Salmon. Welcome to Conservative Minds, a podcast dedicated to examining conservative intellectual history to determine the core values of American conservatism. What does it mean to call yourself a conservative? What did it mean in prior times, and how did we get where we are today? We explore these questions and more by turning to conservative political thinkers from the past and present. Each episode, we select readings and conduct a discussion to share with you our investigation. If you want to join the discussion, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at Cons Minds. That's at C-O-N-S-M-I-N-D-S. For episode seven, we read Reflections on the Revolution in France by Edmund Burke from 1790. Edmund Burke was born in Dublin, Ireland in 1729 to a Protestant father and a Catholic mother. He was raised in the faith of his father, a lawyer, and schooled at Dublin's Trinity College, an Anglican institution. In the 1750s, Burke moved to London to study law, though he eventually turned to literary and intellectual pursuits in a circle that included Samuel Johnson and Oliver Goldsmith. After writing two well-received essays on society and aesthetics, he turned his attention to politics. He entered public life in the 1760s and in 1765 was elected to the House of Commons, where he would sit for the next 30 years. In the 1770s, he defended the American colonies in their developing clash with English commercial and imperial policy. By 1780, Burke had also emerged as the principal critic of what he considered George III's corrupt interference with the independence of the House of Commons. Although Burke saw the power of the crown as a threat to the ancient English constitution and its sacred principles of mixed government and the separation of power, in the 1780s he also spoke out against radical agitation. Democratic enlargement of the suffrage, he argued, was also a threat to the perfectly balanced English constitution. It would admit the people to too great of a share of power. The French Revolution dominated the last years of Burke's life. More than any other figure in English public life, he mobilized sentiment against the Jacobin cause at home and abroad. In the course of this, he split the Whig party, denouncing his former colleagues for their continued sympathy with the French experiment. In the 17 days after the publication of Reflections on the Revolution in France in 1790, 5,500 copies of it were sold. By the, by the end of November, sales had reached 12,000, according to Burke's account. And within a year, some 19,000 copies have been sold in England. Burke died in Beaconsfield, Buckinghamshire, July 9, 1797. And since then, he has become regarded in many corners as the father of modern conservatism. Burke's conception of the world, he, he views it as a divinely ordained universe. He has this uh, providential conception of history. To him, history is the unfolding of God's will. It's uh, In its unfolding history, sort of reveals the divine purposes for man. And he says God willed the state to provide the means for perfecting her human virtue. We see a little bit of how, how he influenced uh, George Will there. He believes political and social life is an expression of God's will. He believes that moral problems, he says moral problems are always embodied in concrete human conditions. Yeah, Burke is deeply skeptical of abstract universals derived through reason, and we'll get into this much more. But when compared with Weaver, Weaver, who certainly thought that universals were critical for human flourishing, a way for humans to understand where they belong in the universe, 
Burke is much more skeptical. He's very practical. Everything comes down to the practical level, to the to the level of everyday life. And he believes that there are universals, but those universals come from God, and they're passed down by tradition. He, he's very critical of social engineering in general, the idea that you can abstract universals just through through reasoning, sitting back and rubbing your chin and figuring out what's what are the rights of man. He, he believes that those are given by God, and we understand them as history unfolds. Yeah, he's very se- skeptical of what he calls like simple schemes of government, which when you're starting all over, like the French Revolution tried to do, it, it always starts out very simple. This rules for everybody, you know, 100% this, 0% that. And his love for the English system with its intricacies and fine balancing and centuries of fine tuning and rights that are limited, but not too much, but just enough. And it, it it's completely at odds with whatever's going on in France. He spends a lot of this book just really talking about how bad France is, which is probably of less interest to our readers today. We revolution's over. We, you know, they figured that out already. Clearly, I mean, it was the major issue of his day. Yeah. So Burke sees the French Revolution as disastrous from the beginning. Spends a good portion of the book detailing exactly why that is. You know, he's he's viewed as sort of the godfather of conservatism, as you said, but he's he's more in the, the traditional conservatism camp uh, rather than, let's say, like a William F. Buckley as a movement conservative. Well, Burke is kind of the original tradition traditional conservative. What that means for us, how that cashes out, is basically like he believes in practical knowledge as the guiding force for political life. And practical knowledge, he says, accumulates over generations in institutions, and it forms the basis for maxims that guide leaders. What he calls the prejudice of the past, but what he's meaning, what he, what he means to say is sort of the, the judgments and decisions of the past that are carried forward. That's what constitutes the horizon of the present. That's, that's what constitutes sort of, to whatever extent we have freedom and liberty today. Those are sort of gifts that have been held in public trust and sort of passed along. You know, Burke is okay with, with change, and this is where it makes him very interesting. He's okay with the change in society, but he believes that change comes gradually as sort of tradition and institutions feel their way out, evolve. That's how we can have change. And so that's, again, he's so critical of, of the French Revolution, the Jacobins, because they didn't allow God's will to unfold in history. Instead, they tried to take matters into their own hands, tried to pull the, the tablecloth out from underneath the, the plates and knock everything over because they thought they could reset it better. And he says, you'll never be able to reset it better. Uh, we need to trust in God's will. We need to trust in tradition, in our ancestors. They've given us this uh, public trust of human rights to the extent we have, and we need to cherish those and preserve them. Yeah, his um, his conception of the consent of the governed really goes beyond even the consent of this generation. We often hear today, uh, especially on the left, people talking about that future generations are depending on what we do today, and we have to take them into consideration. And Burke agrees with that, but he would also take the past generations into consideration. And says, mm-hmm. yeah, he says that government's a, a partnership not only between those who are living, but between those who are living, those who are dead, and those who are to be born. I mean, that's a deeply traditional view. Governments are meant to, they're not just will-o'-the-wisps here for today, whatever we're into today, this is what we must embody. It's really about keeping faith with all the generations, past, present, and future. We live in a very society where we look back on the past and say, oh, how horrible it would have been to live then. And and uh, we're so much more enlightened now. We understand so many more things. And partially that's true, especially as it relates to science and our, our ability to master the 
physical world and that's that continues to improve but uh, for burke he just does not view the world that way he views this as a living contract that moves between generations our ancestors owe something to owed something to us and we owe something to them and we owe something to our the future generation so he, he basically i mean he he straightforwardly rejects the Locke Hobbes state of nature conception as a myth and you said instead he views society there is a contract but it's a living contract and it's not something that we start from square one it's not something we start from scratch instead it's something that we inherit from our ancestors and we have a responsibility to preserve that heritage and pass it along to our kids and future generations right and in a way that that kind of answers one of the criticisms that Locke raised when he in in his at the end of his second treatise he, he noted that there were some obvious criticisms of this consent of the governed idea he was coming up with one of them being nobody's making governments we're already in one mm-hmm. and i think for burke he's saying we're always making it and slightly remaking it all the time it's not like one break with nature as the way yeah. Locke and, and hobbes would sort of portray it as you said yeah it's not re- that nature and then society is, is false. Now it's, it's always been a continuum and it's, and not only is that thing still going and, and we are constantly consenting and reconsenting to the government that exists around us, but that we are responsible for our ancestors consent in that and our descendants consent in that. And it, it, it's, a, it's a really a deeper view of society probably than anybody else we've read and how like temporally broad it is specifically he views it as a partnership in that same uh, section that you're reading from he says it's a partnership in all science a partnership in all art a partnership in every virtue and in all perfection and and if you think about it from his religious framing it makes a lot of sense for him to say well this is god's will unfolding for humans and god has given us a government our duty is to preserve it we're we're caretakers and it's a partnership between all of us because what government is really is basically God's children collectively fulfilling God's will. And as a result, he says that the state ought to be looked on with reverence. And I mean, really compare that to Goldwater or uh, some of our other thinkers. It's a very, very different conception to say, we need to view this with reverence, with respect, almost have have faith in the unfolding because it is the, the historical and uh, it is the unfolding of God's will through history and our duty as stewards, as caretakers, is to preserve that, to pass it along, and to use uh, the collective for our collective good. It's Yeah, it's, it's a real, it's definitely the other side of the conservative libertarian equation here. And that sort of thing that you see even now where libertarian leaning conservatives don't trust the government, don't, you know, don't, but also love the cops love the army love you know yeah. the office of the presidency i remember a lot of talk about that when clinton was being impeached about well we don't like him but the office we must respect and that's that's a tough it's it's tough to square the two because the office is to a large extent the man in it and, yeah. and maybe it maybe it's easier for burke because the crown had this sort of almost supernatural well it was there was some supernatural element to it because he was i mean not since the glorious revolution was England's king really seen as God's anointed absolute ruler, but he was still the head of their church. He was still, you know, a somewhat spiritual figure. 
So maybe maybe it's easier for him to say, well, we can, as, even as he was opposing George III in various political points, well, we must revere the crown. We must revere the Church of England. It's, it's harder to translate to us in America. Yeah. I mean, his his level of comfort with monarchy <laughs> certainly is removed from, from our understanding. But I, I take his point to basically be like, again, this is society has developed. This is sort of God's unveiling. And crown, the monarch, the king serves a purpose. King also preserves liberty. And what we need is respect and almost a, a sense of reverence, he says, with how the institutions as they've developed. And I think his comfort with monarch also con- is connected with his conception of connection between church and state. I mean, he says an established church is essential to the state and found it's a foundation of the constitution. He says unification of church and state is necessary to secure freedom and to act as a check on political power. People and leaders need to fear account for their conduct to God. So he, he actually goes on at length about how the monarch is accountable to God for his conduct. And so that acts as a check. And so Burke is less fearful of a powerful monarch, I guess, because uh, he, he presumes that the monarch fears God's will and that uh, the monarch also understands his role in the, the unfolding of God's will and God's history. Without a church and state, as you said, the monarch also serves as kind of a spiritual leader. And he basically says without religion and without this, uh, this construct, uh, the state must take greater recourse to compel its subjects. So if we didn't have a king who feared God's will, if we didn't have the stability of the monarch and the deep connection, really one in the same uh, church and state, then it would uh, create a much more difficult living situation. The state would have to do much more in order to compel people and to keep them in line and to make society operate. Yeah, that's. I, I think a lot of that could still apply in a place without a state church, maybe except as to the monarch. Maybe the state church, is it's easier to say than it binds the monarch because of his coronation oath and his the fact that he's the head of it, he should probably respect its rules. Although we, even by Burke's time, he had seen plenty of instances in English history where kings warred with, first with the Catholic church, but also with the Church of England. I think that works if the king's a good man, but that would work without a state church if the king were a good man. If he were a Methodist or a Lutheran instead of an Anglican, he'd still fear God if he's the sort of man who fears God. I feel like this is, and this is probably because we're Americans and we're used to freedom of religion, but that it seems like he's arguing a case. He's arguing for the institution, but really what he should be arguing for is like the idea of religion itself, not necessarily that church tax supported and with penal laws attached to it that you have to belong and and all that. Mm -hmm. Well, and as Americans, you know, from prior generations, the early generations, they, they understood the world more along the lines of how you describe it, that uh, they still feared God. They still believed that this was sort of the unfolding of God. And yeah, there was some deism, but there was kind of a sense that there was something more in the universe and everyone was religious by default. And you didn't, but you didn't need the connection of church and state. You still, well, I mean, in the early founding, I guess you still did because you still had state religions, mm-hmm. state of Massachusetts church and so forth. But over time, Obviously, like faith has moved in different directions. We have immigration, people of different faiths. And my question for us is, he says, society without religion cannot be a free society because religion is the basis of all good. And I think we're going we're gonna to have more readings that 
that uh, agree with that and develop that further. As we move along, you know, now and for the future podcasts, a question I have is, is that right? Does it have to be right? If it is right, does that mean, you know, conservatism is doomed? <laughs> right. It's a, yeah, that, um, I didn't anticipate getting into that as often as we have, cause, but we see, we seem to keep coming back to it in these various readings from various different centuries is the idea of that external source of the good, which usually is religion. We also have to consider that the decline of religion in our current time may not be permanent and it has waxed and waned before, but it certainly feels like the West has become a lot more irreligious generally that the default is sort of secularism, even in some ways, even extreme French style secularism, where it's, you don't even mention contrasted Mm -hmm. with the, the older American secularism where you do everybody went to his different church or synagogue or whatnot. And you might mention it, you might talk about it, but it wasn't explicit in our laws. Like, well, we're doing this because you know, this Bible verse, but it was still informing Mm -hmm. our conversations. Now it seems that even to say you're informed, your morals are informed by the Bible or any other religious text is sort of seen. It's outre, you know, it's, it's backward. And, uh, it, at least by a lot of the arbiters of secular society, for sure. So if we keep going that way, yeah, then what can can any of these theories work unmoored from that? I'm sure. And if Burke took a time machine up to today and saw our increasingly secular society, what would he say? Would he say, "Well, this society's doomed. It's it's heading for crash in the ditch," or would he say, "Well, this is just another manifestation of the unfolding"? Well, that's that's a point. Know, what do you yeah, that, I mean. The unfolding is always probably going to take some wrong turns. And I guess that's part of the, the, the compromise, the consideration of convenience that, that Burke talks about is the um, the back and forth with, with limits and rights that we're eventually sort of narrowing in on what the true government should be. Mm-hmm. So maybe, I mean, I'd like to think he would say, that maybe we swung a little too far of the mark, but we'll the results of that will inevitably lead us to come back around. I hope so. Uh, mm-hmm. Although it, it didn't really in France. They're, they're, still, they're still pretty far out there. Yeah. Well, so let's talk a little bit about his conception of human nature. He's, he believes, he says specifically, there is no fixed human nature. And instead, human nature is continually redefined within kind of the evolving currents of history, as we talked about. And uh, I found this really interesting and kind of unexpected because it's almost sort of a proto, you know, postmodernism. I mean, what would Weaver say to this? That there's no fixed human nature. What would George Will say to this almost? I think, you know, for Weaver, he thinks that, you know, man is an aspirational animal, needs meaning, needs higher values, uh, needs uh, something metaphysical to aim his sights. And, you know, George Will is, you know, basically like man is a moral animal needs prodding in the in a moral direction in order to find fulfillment but you have you have a burke who's basically like well your human nature is what god and nature and whatever education and your heritage have given you so this is exactly sort of the postmodern thought of today is to say your existence is socially constructed only he would he would add god with it but but yeah you're who you are as a human and the human nature is not a given and it cannot be abstracted through 
through reason and through abstract principles, universals. Instead, we each one of us is also just another element in the unfolding of God's will, and our nature is dictated by what came before us and our heritage and whatever God intends for us in the future. I thought that was pretty fascinating. I, I did too. That was surprising to me because we don't we don't usually hear it in conservative thought, and here we have the the grandfather of conservative thought saying it. It's different. I think in a way that could, I mean, he, he does say that man has a, is a spiritual creature. So to the, I mean, to that extent, he has a nature and the nature is to, mm-hmm. to be religious. That's also still pretty broad. The only thing I could think of is that maybe this kind of leads into a lot of what we now call Burkeanism is about local based conservatism, you know, conservative, the mm-hmm. idea that different nations are different, different communities are different. And so maybe that's a part of what he was getting at is that even if France hadn't you know, messed up their revolution so horribly, they would still be different than England and they would have a you know, different structure, different faith, you know, different cultural artifacts, still tr- still striving towards that idea of God's vision for mankind and the world. But uh, mm-hmm. I think each country and each county and, the, and each town is going to wander at it a little differently. And I get maybe maybe what Burke was saying is that there's there's no human nature so pervasive that an Englishman or and an Italian and a Japanese and a Native American would all necessarily agree on the proper way to live and be governed. Mm-hmm. I, I could kind of get behind that, although I, I really I, I think human nature is a lot more universal than than he gives it credit for being. Yeah, yeah. To, to your point about the king local, he has a name for that. He calls them the little platoons. The little platoon is basically the small subdivisions in society. It's family, it's neighborhood, it's church, it's clubs, it's scouts, it's local government, little league, whatever. To him, like this provides the first link toward engaging with mankind, or the love of country, and so forth. It's not, not only does he not want to abstract... Uh, one country versus another. He doesn't even want to do it within the country. He just wants to come down to the lower level, lower level, and say, "This is where we live. This is our practical everyday life." Thinking big, highbrow thoughts, trying to create abstract principles, axioms out of whole cloth. There's not any value in that. Instead, we need to look to each other on this lower, on the most basic level of society. That's where we work together. That's where we build relationships. That's where we find happiness. That's how human flourishing occurs is at that lowest level. Yeah, that little platoon line is probably the thing I'd seen the most attributed to Burke before we read this. Yeah, his, his conservatism is, is people-based, not idea-based. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the heart of it. It's, that's a great way to put it. That's it, a great way to put it. And, and that means it's, it's, it's changeable, which explains why his, I think, principles are... They're, slowly changeable, but they're still changeable in the way that somebody like Weaver would disagree with, I think. Or or a lot of rights-based thinkers who would say, no, these are the rights. They've always been the rights. And I, I can climb that way myself often because you, like, you hear a lot of times people saying, well, you know, it's 2018. We can't be. And so, well, you know, if something's true in 1818, it's probably true in 2018, unless we're talking mm-hmm. about a machine or science or something that we can measure and know better. If we're talking mm-hmm. about the rights of human beings, free speech is free speech, no matter what century it's in. So, but I think Burke, maybe he wouldn't go as far as, as what I just said. His idea about the little platoons, it, it does feel like that's how we, as we grow to adulthood too. I mean, the people we are attached to 
our family, you know, the people in our household and then you, your neighborhood, you, you know, other families and you go to school and, mm-hmm. and then, you know, you move into the working world and you're you know in some city or town and you're interacting with greater numbers. And eventually, I mean, by then you should be sort of identifying with this idea of we live in a nation in States, but it, it all begins with that. And it, mm-hmm. I've always thought nationalism is sort of family writ large. Yeah, and that's yeah. why I think a lot, a lot of whether you are nationalistic or not comes in the same way that some people hate their hometown and some people love it. You know, I mean, you, I, I know a lot of people who the whole time we were growing up together couldn't wait to get out of our hometown. Mm-hmm. And then there's other people. Like I, I live about three miles from where I was born, so you, oh, well. see, you see which side I'm on on that one. But what's <laughs> that? I'm about two thousand miles from where I was born. Yeah, and it's. I think some of that's just, I mean, some of it's job stuff, you know, I mean, if I, I grew up in, in Philadelphia, so there are, there are still jobs here. And so I, I didn't have to leave the way people in more like downtrodden areas, such as I know a lot of people moved out of Detroit a few years ago, but I think that attachment to the local place is it's almost more like a feeling than an idea. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, I think, I think Burke's person-based conservatism is maybe harder to define but i think it's resonant with a lot of people and it's sort of some of what we're seeing in this populist resurgence today it's yeah there are ideas but who's taking care of this place who's taking care of these people um whatever whatever your ideas are it's not working for us and he gives us the what he considers the highest values of society i think it falls along the lines of what you're talking about so the values of society he says are morality religion, solidity, which is basically, you know, sort of maintaining solid uh, stability, Uh, property, peace. These are the three, peace, order, manners. Uh, We we haven't picked up on any of those in our our prior readings. I'm not entirely sure we'll see, you know, manners repeated, but the highest values for him, I mean, what kind of society is created under this rubric where peace, order, manners, religion, stability. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a traditional society. It's an aristocracy that's sort of, it's the caretakers ensure the stability and the continuation of the values and of the country. And what really stood out to me too is what we didn't read. Well, he didn't say he doesn't mention liberty or freedom. In other words, mm-hmm. what Locke was preoccupied with, what Goldwater was preoccupied with. In fact, he says that uh, liberty, without these values, liberty has little benefit and won't last. I mean, he's pretty skeptical of excessive liberty. And he has this very famous quote, the effect of liberty to individuals is that they may do what they please. We ought to see what it pleases them to do before we risk congratulations, which may be soon turned into complaints. That, yeah, that, I, I highlighted that one myself. That's It's beautiful. And that's something I think Will and Bork we're referring back to also is that you know, uh-huh. liberty is it an end or is it a means and for the last three weeks i think we've been involved with authors who would say it's it's the means to get to the good and if it doesn't get us to the good then we have to look at other means the peace order and manners too reminded me a lot of i think it's it's in one of canada's founding documents it might have been their oh really federation act they talk about in the same way that we talk about life liberty and pursuit of happiness in the declaration they talked about peace order and good government hmm. which yeah, sounded less um always sounded less dramatic to me the american you know life liberty that's these are worth fighting for you know 
good government. Well, it's good to have. But I think Burke would put it just as highly. Well, it's not sexy. I mean, it's not aspirational to say what we need is order and good manners and wash your hands and clean up before you eat and make sure you eat your vegetables. Yeah. Uh, does ma- Do you need manners to be a conservative? That's a question in the age of Trump. Uh, that is a question. We, we could leave that one for another day. But a lot, yeah, a lot of what he's talking about is, I, I saw it elsewhere too, is even when he was saying, you know, should we congratulate France on their our new liberties I said i should therefore suspend my congratulations on the new liberty of france until i was informed how they've been combined with with government with public force with discipline and obedience of armies the collection of an effective and well-distributed revenue with morality and religion with solidity and proper yeah this is what you were saying before with peace order civil and social matters that's it's kind of an odd grab bag because some of those are really we would still say important and some of them are more esoteric like morality and religion but the collection of revenue okay i mean that's it's you got to have it but i don't know if i would have listed it in terms of like 10 things a good government should have to govern justly it's like well you need a good tax collection you do. yeah yeah i mean it's almost for him like what he's saying is i let's see on a practical level how this thing plays out because i don't think we need to sit back and pat ourselves on the back and self-congratulate over these big ideas we've come up with instead i want to see does it work is it is it are are people happy is the garbage getting picked up are are the streets cleaned you know are people able to you know get their get an education are people able to move up if not then it's not working and i'm not i'm not going to sit back and congratulate on these big ideas and the ivory tower genius instead i want to know does it work in pra- at a practical level? I think that's something we saw at the end of the Cold War, too. When you saw you know, the Soviet Union fall and they say, oh, now they've got liberty over there. Now, now they can they can go to church. They can say what they want. They can publish what they want. No more gulag. And that was all true. And those were great things. And, you know, I mean, the, the end of the Cold War and the, and the victory over communism was a great one of the greatest blows for human freedom in our history. But also, some of those some of those countries ended up a lot better off than the. I mean, you know, Russia was a mess afterwards, whereas mm-hmm. you know, Germany got back together. Poland, they're fine. You know, they there was there's always bumps, but they they established new governments and they they did collect their taxes and have order in the streets. And and whereas Russia, you know, you have hyperinflation and people's pensions are being reduced to nothing. And then you can imagine a lot of old folks, especially who are living on these. Soviet pensions that are now worthless saying, eh, what's all this liberty? You know, I'm, I'm yeah. still standing in line for soup. And so, yeah, and he has that great point that, that you can't superimpose kind of a, a societal structure from the outside or even, you know, try to recreate it from the inside. And, and to your point, it, I, what really came to mind is our, our experience, um, our adventure in Iraq, his, the, the Bush doctrine was basically like spread freedom and we're going to, we're going to take out this dictator and we're going to superimpose our Western individualistic capitalistic values basically hasn't worked. Yeah. <laughs> we, we had to, you know, fight and spend a lot of time there and ultimately come to the conclusion that that's not what's going to work for them. Uh, I'm not saying because they're incapable of it, but because what Burke would say, I think is, well, those traditions didn't grow out. They didn't evolve naturally. It wasn't a, it wasn't a a practical, you know, historical unfolding. Instead, it was from the outside, you're trying to superimpose. And, and that's, I think the same with post-Cold War Soviet Union, Russia, and 
you know, the same with French Revolution. If, if you sit at a drafting board and, and identify out of, the, out of the, the ether the exact rights of man and write them down on a piece of paper and then go deliver that, it, it, that's not how it works. We have to have this, Burke says, the social contract, the living contract where it's, you inherit these values and you're here to preserve them and maybe build upon them a little bit and pass those along. And uh, the whole clock, the wholesale destruction and replacement that just does not work yeah i think and i think that's something we i wish we would have thought about more in those days because i i i believed what president bush was pushing then too i thought yeah these are these are he had something about they were the common birthright of all humanity some line to that effect that you know liberty is it's a universal value and that everyone deserves it and nobody should have to live under a dictator and i i, I agree with that i think but it's still an abstraction. Yes. I mean, so what you're agreeing with is conceptually, and I, I agree too at a theoretical level. But then at the practical level, how do you? How do and you I, yeah, it? I think Burke would say that they, the people of Iraq or Afghanistan have to come to that on their own, and, and building on their own traditions, come to a place where those human rights are recognized. That's a, he would say that's a slow process, but it has, maybe it has to be. I mean, because well, we saw what happened if you just try and say, well, all right. You, You've got liberty now. You're a democracy. Go vote. Yeah, see, it's on this piece of paper. <laughs> right. You got it. Or even when Egypt went, you know, democratic throughout their dictator. All right, now, now go vote. And then they elected the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, not not that though. We want we meant you should vote for somebody good. Yeah. <laughs> somebody who's going to give you rights, not take them away. And I think Burke would have been, oh yeah, that's totally what I expected. I mean, what these these institutions they grow out organically. The idea that they were going to do anything other than vote in the Muslim Brotherhood was pretty naive. Yeah, and maybe there. I mean, maybe 16th century France also would have voted if they could vote for a, a Catholic theocracy. You know, as and maybe yeah. they because that would have been they wouldn't have had the tradition of you know, Voltaire and Montesquieu and and all that developed yet because they weren't you know, that wasn't part of their discovery of God's ideal government as Burke would have it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and to build on. On, on the liberty conversation, he, he also has something interesting to say about free speech. He says, it has been the misfortune of this age that everything needs to be discussed. <laughs> so I think, yeah. I mean, he has a, a skepticism of free speech as well. I mean, and it goes back to, well, before we congratulate people on their speech, let's find out what speech they want to give because, you know, maybe it's going to be counterproductive. And, you know, I think, you know, compare that to today. In the abstract, we all sort of agree on free speech, but at a practical level, you know, you have conservatives who buys flag burning or speaking ill of the troops or, you know, kneeling at football mm-hmm. games and so forth. And, and on the left, you know, you got microaggressions and, and you, you are causing me harm with your words. Your words are damaging. It's kind of like at a theoretical level, everyone agrees we want free speech. At a practical level, Burke's like, yeah, well, not everything needs to be talked about. <laughs> and I, I, I'm not saying I agree with that because, of course, I, I actually don't. But no, I'm, I, I just found that. No, really I'm with you. I'm pretty I'm pretty absolute on free speech myself. But it's a it's a something I think a lot is that, yeah, you do have a right to say that. But do you have to? I mean, really? Because yeah. people maybe that's the manners part of it that. Yeah, right. Like, oh, you can you can Go say ahead. that. But really, it's rude. Yeah, Burke's view on restraints of rights are, it was interesting. He said he, he viewed the restraints as almost like a right in itself, as something 
that was desirable. That's almost like a religious conception of, you know, uh, God has handed us these rules and you can view the rules as limiting, holding you back, or you can view them as creating freedom for you. And the way I grew up, sort of like the rules were freeing because if you, you know, don't take drugs or, you know, don't uh, drink alcohol, then that is, that's a, a liberating factor in your life because then you'll never become subject to addiction, let's say, or or whatever. And so the idea of we need rules, we need we need this stable expectations. And by doing so, that's what creates freedom. That's what creates an ability for everyone to get along together. Yeah, I thought about it sort of in the in terms of poetry too. And when you you can write in blank verse and you can do whatever you want and call it a poem. But then sometimes that, that freedom is so wide it's hard to know what to where even to begin. But then you, but if if you find a constricting form like an English sonnet, it's harder, but it kind of forces you to, to boil down like a word limit in a brief or, or an article. It, it makes mm-hmm. you get rid of what's unimportant and really focus on what works, what fits the pattern. And sometimes yeah. that, that ends up with a better product and a better expression of whatever feeling you were trying to convey. There's something to that. It's and, and it, But it always comes back to me for to the question, well, who gets to set the limit? And that's, that's right. so hard for, for us as as people who believe in liberty and believe in American style conservatism is to say, well, we've seen in Burke's day, the government was very conservative. It, it represented a lot, the landed interest, the crown, the church, when it's so much the opposite today. I think that the people setting these, these limits would not set them in the way that we like. They, they limit mm-hmm. a lot of the things we like. They would not limit a lot of the things we find harmful. As we we've said before, that could that could also change. So maybe people on the left who would say, "Well, fine, that's 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 what the law is now." Then we elect somebody who they hate, as we did in 2016. So maybe mm-hmm. maybe question your your love of government setting the restraint. They haven't yet, but we hope they will eventually, because they're certainly not going to always like who's who's sitting in the White House or at the head of the executive agencies and and. I think that's something that Burke doesn't have to address because the government in his day is never, it's never been radical in England at that point. And, yeah. And well, I think he'd answer your question of who gets to decide. Well, he'd say those with the vested interest, that's the aristocracy, right. you know, that's uh, we, we have a, a stabilizing element in society and that's the crown. That's the aristocracy. They have a vested interest in con- the continuation of society and providing stability and that's inherited we should respect that and kind of reverence because that's that's how god intended is you know that's how history has unfolded he you know god intends for uh, a certain class of people to you know sit at the head of the table and make these difficult decisions and you know in, in our american history we've had the same noblesse oblige and i think you know george hw bush is a perfect example of this those are the type of people i think burke would say should be making the determinations. I think it does raise the question and sort of the, the criticism that I've heard of Burke, which is that, you know, okay, well, then if that's the case, would we have been able to overcome the sordid elements in our American past, uh, you know, Jim Crow and persecution of homosexuals, let's say, or, you know, these type of questions, because if you have an aristocracy, they are by nature, you know, conservative they want to keep things the way they are because they're the ones with the power and the privilege and they want to maintain it. What's that balance? Well, you, you just, I think, 
hit the nail on the head and that today we don't quite have a, an aristocracy, certainly not in the same sense. We do have vested interests. We do have people who are more powerful than others, but we don't want them making decisions for us. And so how, how does it transfer to today and how can we really, you know, overcome some of the weaknesses of the, some of the shortcomings of, of a, an aristocracy of a continuation of privilege through a family line? Yeah, I think he, he had the, I think he believed too much in the high mindedness of the upper classes. And I could see why in a way, because, well, he, he was part of that upper class, so he probably thought they were doing things right. But also his idea that property sort of tempers radicalism is true. I mean, I think he talked about how the, the people that blew everything up in France were not small landowners. They were small businessmen, small professionals, lawyers, doctors, not people with the estates that were getting invaded mm -hmm. and divided and ruined. And if they had been, if they had owned those estates and not just seized them from somebody else, they might have been inclined to say, well, let's slow down. Let's, let's not do anything too hasty. And that's true. I mean, the property does have that tempering influence, but I, I also think it has the influence of going too far in like pro the rights of property is, is the only one he doesn't seem to think should have a limit, unlike the other rights of man. Mm, yeah, that's good. And, uh, well, yeah, you know, so if that's the case, then the government's going to, whenever property rights bump up against any other of these traditional rights, that w the other right is the one that's going to be getting limited. So that's mm -hmm. perhaps the, the bigger flaw here. So I, I think to your point, an aristocratic state you might never have abolished slavery until it became not useful to them, which may never have happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's it could certainly have continued to exist under you know industrialization. You know, I mean, you could have you could have easily just had sweatshops staffed by slaves as you do staffed by lowly paid work. So yeah. I, I, yeah. I think that's that's certainly the big flaw, and it's maybe because he was focused more on England, which didn't have slavery, at least not in the in the home islands, and didn't have, and you know, as other minorities, he probably most people in 1790 was not really thinking about it, you know. Mm -hmm. Well, it defends, I think, our American sensibilities in other ways too, and that standing aristocracy does not leave tons of room for kind of an opportunity society, mm -hmm. right, and that. We're talking about minorities who are who are held down, but you know, even for any other type of people who are not aristocrats, who are not rich, who don't already have the land, well, how do they get ahead? How do they, you know, have a hope for the future? I, I'm not sure you do have that. You know, it's kind of like, well, we're peasants or we're bourgeoisie, and that's pretty much my my son's going to be, <laughs> and that's the that's the expectation. And I guess you know that is somewhat. I guess at a practical level, it's still true in America, but on an aspirational level, it's not true at all. I mean, people absolutely believe that they can move ahead. I, I've moved ahead of where my where I was born, and and I have high hopes that for my kids can do the same. And I'm not sure you'd really have that if, if there's this expectation that a family lineage of landowners are sort of the decision makers, and that's the way God intended it, and that you know, pat pat on your head, mm -hmm. like just understand that that's how the world works yeah, and especially in a place like england where the land was all divided up hundreds of years ago i mean you could at least say in the america of burke's time there was this frontier where people could acquire and become part of the new aristocracy and the new states that were being erected after the revolution out west but yeah in a static state like most states always are that lack of opportunity for advancement 
within a generation is, is tough to reconcile with any sort of American spirit. So I think as much as he's a father to American conservatism, a lot of that sort of pro-aristocratic thinking is, is never going to translate to what we have here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All right. Well, we're pretty far along. What uh, closing thoughts do you have on Burke? Well, a lot of what Burke was talking about, I think, was reaction to an extreme form of rights-based ideology that is not altogether unfamiliar today. And I, I, I think rights have been elevated above good living, proper living, righteousness, whatever you want to call it, in a way that Burke would be familiar with. But I don't think it's quite as disastrous as he foresaw. In America, we're not, we're not, we're not, we're not running around with the guillotine as they did in France. Um, mm-hmm. There is a, there's a, I think there's a bigger place for absolute rights than Burke recognizes, but his, his other conceptions of granular conservatism, local conservatism, maybe less abstract conservatism are ones that I think we could benefit from today. They are applicable to our federal state and our, our idea of localism and not imposing values on people to too great an extent. So I think, I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of moderation in Burke's conservatism that, that bears thinking mm-hmm. about today. What do you think? I really appreciated his insights on practical wisdom, focusing on the little platoons and the the uh, practical level of society. Maybe I tend more towards the the big thoughts and abstract thinking. And I think what you know Burke is saying that this is how society should develop, should operate, and that that may or may not be true. But I think he's right that this is how it does operate. Mm-hmm. I mean, very rarely do we have moments of erase the entire chalkboard and start over like French revolution. And hopefully in our lifetime, we never experienced, you know, that instead things gradually evolve, organically change. I think he's absolutely right about that. And I think there's a real value in it. And I I really appreciated him raising those points for our listeners. I'd also say this reading reflections on the revolution in France was some of the least enjoyable (laughs) reading it's a difficult read because he's he, he's a non-linear thinker. He jumps around a lot. It's kind of hard to follow him sometimes. It's very old Englishy language, and what <laughs> it didn't take long for me to realize why everyone quotes Burke but doesn't yes. read Burke because <laughs> it's kind of a slog. So I would recommend if you do read, look for excerpts because some of the nuggets are you know kind of difficult to find in the in the the ocean of of his uh, stream of consciousness anyway but his thoughts are great and as i put my notes together kyle and i you you and i talked about this as as once i started putting my notes together i realized yeah actually there's a lot of really good meaty um, Mm. nuggets in here so all right that's it for burke next time we're going to read capitalism and freedom written by milton friedman from 1962 thanks for joining us see you then